1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are going to read the whole thing. It's a, a smaller chapter, 13 verses. Here's 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. This is what it says. I'll explain what, what's happening here, but we should be able to get a little idea of this that Paul is addressing here. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, to the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, I'd ask you to pray, and if you're thinking this is about not eating meat, pray doubly, because it's about more than that. We'll talk about that. But I want you to pray this specific prayer. Ask God to help you love your brother or sister more effectively. You pray that silently, pray that God would speak, and then I'll pray for us together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would help us to love our brother or sister in Christ with a greater and deeper love. That is what Paul is addressing. We need it addressed in our own hearts, no doubt, to glorify Christ and to get over ourselves, as it were, strip us of our pride so that we can do that, to love, keep our ears open so that we can learn from your word this morning and that we might apply it to our lives, not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So Paul is writing here that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We come to this subject of truth and conviction for one and freedom and liberty for another in the body kind of colliding. There's an issue that is being played out in the Corinthian church and some are having conviction about some things and some are not having conviction about other things. And we can relate to this in the church because it happens all the time. Here are just a few things that, that divide in the church. We could talk about as we recently went through this season, Halloween, how does a Christian practice that? We can talk about how does a Christian approach Christmas and what's coming. Do you have Christmas trees? What's okay? What's not okay? Should I sit on Santa's lap? Should we do this to Santa? Who knows? 
schooling choices, Bible translations, music styles, building aesthetics, you name it, many different opinions and many different convictions exist about all of these things. Convictions clash. So what do you do? Paul says you love. He says knowledge, and we're going to talk about this, he's not denying that you should have truth and it should exist, puffs up, but love will actually do a different thing. It will build up. And he's talking here in 1 Corinthians 8 about loving one another and specifically protecting the tender conscience of a weaker believer, someone that doesn't share in the same conviction or thought. In a nutshell, he's telling us this. I'm going to read this twice so we get it. That Christian love must wisely temper Christian liberty. That Christian love must wisely temper Christian liberty. liberty. In other words, you should know enough to love. Paul looks out at the landscape of the Corinthian church. And remember, we've been through this in eight chapters. And in the culture, they really loved their knowledge and intellect. That was a big part of who they defined themselves to be. We know things. And so Paul says this, essentially my summary, you should know enough to love. That's what you should know. That's what you should run to. So I don't care what you know as much as how you're going to live that out. Practical theology is what we talk about all the time. So let me give you a brief flyover of the text so you can understand what exactly is happening here. And then we'll come back and kind of like divide it into three chunks, which I think is appropriate. Now, Paul writes in verse 1, you can tell, as he wrote in verse 7 or chapter 7, he's addressing issues in the church. So he says, now concerning food offered to idols. So there was a question for them. They wanted to know, what about food for idols? Just like we would want to know, what about Halloween? What about Christmas? What about this? What about this? How should I deal with this? And Paul is writing back here. He's saying, I'm going to address that issue. You see, they fretted many of them, about the meat that was being sacrificed to idols in pagan temples in the culture. And it was a dividing issue whether some would eat that meat and some would not eat that meat. And it bothered other believers who had, listen to this, recently been converted that they felt like they were involved in idolatry in that way and they would never go and touch that stuff. But other believers who understood what Paul was writing There's only one God. This stuff isn't real anyways. They partook in the meat, and it became a big deal. They didn't think it was a neutral issue, these these recently converted believers. And so those who would eat it ended up wounding others. And instead of showing patience and love, it caused hurt and division. So Paul calls to love, even if it means sacrificing what they wanted. And I should say that we, we should understand love anyways. Perfect and true love will always come with sacrifice. So let's dive in here, the first section, so we can understand what Paul is dealing with, letting the text speak here. In the first three verses, he's really driving at this point that love is what builds up. Now, what's the deal with this food issue? He, he talks about love building up, but you have to understand a little background. There are three ways a person could come in contact with this meat to eat it. And it's helped to help us to understand the culture here. One is that they could show up at a pagan temple and eat the fellowship meal in honor of a pagan god. That would be very bad. But that was one way they could. They could actually show up in this form of pagan worship and eat the meat. The second way is they could purchase the meat in a marketplace and eat it at home. So part of that sacrifice meat was then sold in a market. So a Christian in Corinth could go and buy that, 
bring it home and eat it. And then the third way is they could be invited to somebody's home to have a meal which that meat was served. So Paul, knowing these things, has to address it in those ways. There's three ways that the, they could have come in contact. Now, this doesn't largely happen in our culture in this specific example, but there are other things that you'll see as we go along that apply in our culture that you could see, oh, I could see how the Bible is still relevant in this matter towards culture. That we're like convicted all the time about different things of, and, and I'll talk about some things, but like whether I, whether I shop at this store or I shop at this store because they support XYZ or they do XYZ. And so there's a bunch of th- ways that they could have come in contact. And Paul is addressing, and he, what he does is he starts by addressing their liberty. Remember in chapter 6, verse 12, he said, all things are lawful for me, but not th- all things are helpful. Remember that Paul knew that they had been saved by grace and they were free from the religious strictness of the law. Not that they were to be set apart, they were still set apart in holiness, not that they weren't to obey Christ's commands anymore, but that they had freedom in Christ. And so Paul says, remember that? You have liberty, but not all things are going to be helpful. Such is one of these things. They had rights of that grace. They had a right in that freedom in Christ, but some used it in a way to be unloving to brothers and sisters in the family of God. You see, their pride blinded them, and that's where I would start with this. Sometimes our pride blinds us and keeps us from being aware of others. In this culture, it's especially true. In a culture where self is the highest exists in existence, we often don't think of others, and so Paul is addressing this issue of love. He's saying you need to think of others. And what he does is he addresses them not of their crookedness, but of their knowledge. Which, by the way, he it's right knowledge that this meat isn't going to separate them from God. It's a neutral issue. But he actually corrects them and adds, this knowledge isn't enough. You need to love. It's standing in the way of something else being out of order. And so this knowledge is addressed. Why? Because knowledge and love, and we know this in the church, they're different. You need them both, and Paul is not condemning the knowledge, but knowledge has the ability to do something to create arrogance about us. And we know in the church this is, this is easily happening at times where people and their theological heads and their big gigantic Bibles beat each other over the head. And it creates this in, in us. Love, however, doesn't do that. In fact, you can't ever love too much or abuse it. Think about that. Perfect love will never do that. And if you love rightly the way Jesus loved, you won't become arrogant. And so Paul calls them out. And he says there's this difference between this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, the Greek words that are used would be really helpful in understanding what Paul is talking about. The Greek word there for love is is edi is edifies. That's what it means, which meant to build a house. And he said that's, that's the love word. The Greek word that he uses there about puffs up means to make arrogant or physio, which means to blow something up. So a good rendering would be this. Knowledge blows up, but love builds up. He's not saying the knowledge is wrong. He's not saying their, their, their gospel is, is unimportant. He's just saying that this particular issue, you have the ability to blow up relationships and people, or you can love, and that can build up. 
Kind of the idea of this inflation of a balloon. If you prick a balloon, the whole thing explodes. But if you lean up against a wall, right, a sturdy wall, you're safe there. And he says, this is what is happening in the church. You are the ability to blow up by your attitude, your theological mind, or you have the opportunity to walk with brothers and sisters and build up. And so he says, if you know something in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That's a really confusing sentence, but what Paul is saying there is you don't really know rightly because your knowledge isn't loving. In fact, Godet put it this way, knowledge devoid of love and the power to edify, when you look at it more closely, is not even true knowledge. He said when you look at, at that kind of, through that kind of lens, that's actually not knowledge. And we know people like this who are very unloving in their wisdom, and you say, that's actually not wise because it breaks apart relationships. Paul says true awareness in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. True awareness or knowledge that is right will be a true love for God. And when you love God, was the first greatest commandments, right? Jesus came and summarized them, love God and love others. When you love God and are known by him, that will translate to love for other people. People often think they love God well in the church with their big theological heads all the while running people down. And Paul says, again, my summary, you should know enough to love. And so what he does cleverly is Paul unpacks in the next section the theological truth that there is only one God. Remember, he's writing to the whole church, so he wants to correct the error if there be that. And so he says this, Therefore, as to eating and food and offering idols, we know, we know, this is a truth, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So he's telling the church, listen, on this particular issue, there is only one God. There is no such thing as an idol. And so there, therefore, if you offer meat to idols, it's all false anyways. Yes, it's pagan in practice. Yes, you probably shouldn't do that. But at least he's driving at the theological point. There is only one God. And he wants to make sure that the truth is clear about that. Being a theologian, he must cover this matter. All things exist from him, and all life is from his hand. And Jesus is at the center of it. This is supreme to everything. It's the truth. There are no pagan gods, no other idols. There have no reality all, reality at all. They're all phonies of the real thing, Paul says. And Paul cannot impart this enough, but do you see what he does here? He says, although this is right and true, this is the aim. There is but one God. He says, you still have to be aware of others. So we can have our little theological form, form and agree on this, but you still cannot run others over. You don't throw this knowledge away. There is one God. There is no, no truth in idols in their existence. All things exist and flow through Jesus Christ himself. That's the truth. But you can't beat someone up over that if they're not quite there yet. Remember, these people had just been saved. They had just come out of pagan culture, and they weren't there yet. He says you should know enough to love. Think about it this way. How often, and if you're married, you probably operate, and if you're a husband, I know you probably definitely operate this way. How often in our arguments do we just want to be right? Like, sometimes this happens with my wife and I. I'm like that all the time. You just want to be right. And sometimes you'll, you'll like, back off a little bit. You'll let situations play out, and you'll do the whole, well, I was right, wasn't I? Or the whole, I told you so. And we put that stake in the ground so firmly, we have to be right. And so these people in Corinth were putting that stake down 
I'm right on this issue, and I can eat meat, and I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, you need to back off. It's not always about being right. And he challenges the attitude in this. And so he points them to this third section in great seriousness. He points them to the supreme consideration that you'll find in the, the last several verses, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, this is pretty serious stuff because you'll, we'll see how, how we read at the end. Paul takes this pretty seriously. He says, not all men possess this truth. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Some recently converted aren't there yet. And Paul says, Christ died for them too. You see, this matters to them. Their conscience is defiled. You're creating a stumbling block. Now, you would think that younger believers... When you go to the text, you wouldn't think they would struggle with matters like this because we think of younger believers typically as more liberal, that they'll just do whatever. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the law. And so typically, the frame, you have to get your mind to understand this text. Think of, think of like younger, newer Christians, if you will. Usually they just like do whatever and they don't. This was different. These people really cared that other Christians were going defiling themselves and so it really bothered them. They were so radically converted that they didn't want to have anything to do with their old way of life. It's interesting in some ways that it's actually the immature brother trying to love God and the more immature brother not loving others. Let me give you an example of this. When I was younger, I, uh, I worked at Lake Geneva Youth Camp, grew up there in the summer and, uh, as a camper, and then I became a staffer there. And in teen camp, so I was in high school, I... I worked with a friend, and we were in the dish room together. We always listened to music, and we listened to music in the dish room, Christian camp, mind you, and we listened to music when we were traveling places and all that stuff. And I would just give you a little background, and none of this should really shock you too much, but I was a pretty arrogant kid. I think I knew, yeah, you weren't supposed to, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I was a pretty arrogant kid, and I thought I grew up in a very conservative, strict, like, awesome upbringing in the sense of knowing God's word, but we thought we knew everything. And so this particular kid grew in Christ to the point where he had a conviction that, that he didn't want to listen to any of his music anymore that wasn't Christian. And so after a moment at camp, kind of like a spiritual high, he went back and he get rid of all his non-Christian CDs. I'm talking country, like in that, I mean, some of you are like, country's Christian. Uh, he got rid of everything, all right? And so he got rid of everything, and, and we, again, some of the music was he, probably not the best, but he got rid of everything, and some of it we probably should have learned from ourselves, but he gets rid of everything, he comes back, and when we, we were around him, he didn't want to listen to other things, so we'd get in the car, we'd drive somewhere, he didn't want to listen to that, and what we did was we just did it anyways, because we didn't care, and eventually that particular friend of mine kind of distanced himself, and what was worse than that is we thought he was just better than us. So he moved apart from that based on a spiritual conviction that he had. And when I think back to that moment, when I think back to how we treated him, we thought it was because he was better than us. And it turns out he probably was. Because what we didn't do is we didn't care about him at all. 
We didn't care about him, a fellow Christian. And remember, I'm in high school, and so I don't know everything. Like, I think I know everything. And, and going back, I think of myself as so incredibly immature. That's what you do as you get older. You go, wow, like, I'm still immature. How must, much more I would have been then? And you think, we still could have done better to acknowledge somebody who had a conviction over things. And did I love him? Did we love him well enough? And so Paul, still wanting to balance truth and love, continues by saying, listen, verse 8, food doesn't commend us to God, right? It's food. It doesn't matter if you eat it, don't eat it, whatever. It's a neutral, amoral matter. It doesn't really matter. But then he says in verse 9, but take care that this, we should, if you have a Bible, you should underline this part, that this right of yours maybe even put it in quotes, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. As Americans, I say this often, we struggle with our rights because we, we are in a culture that we are very entitled people, if we're being honest, and we have rights. And so I, here's what you'd hear somebody in the church, probably Christian, but you'd hear it outside of the church for sure, but you often hear it in the church, I shouldn't have to do this because of somebody else. And we struggle with that all the time. I shouldn't have to give up my rights. I'm an American because of X, Y, Z out in the world. And Paul, if you remember our series as a whole, countercultural, says the church is different. You don't operate like the world. You don't operate in your rights. You operate sacrificing those for Christ himself. He says, be careful not to use your liberty to run over a brother. And so look what he does. The seriousness of this matter in verse 10 and 11. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, the one who says it's not a big deal, which he's right, but he sees him doing that, will he not be encouraged then to go and do it himself? And then his conscience is defiled. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from, for whom Christ died, verse 12 Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when is weak, you sin against Christ. You see what Paul did there? He took a neutral issue of food in pagan temples. Don't mistake that. He says it's not a big deal. But he says you could make that such a deal by it not being a deal that you'll put it in your brother's face. You'll do it because it's your right to do it. And he, sa- he agrees. He says, I think your theology is right about that. But when you do that, you could actually destroy sin against your brother and therefore sin against Christ because of your attitude in that. That is serious business. Thank God for the Bible on issues like this because there's a bunch of cultural implications. I think back and go, whoa, what a religious, unloving punk I was back in high school. That's what I had when I read this text again. Was all the music bad? Not all of it. Some of it probably was. And it might not be the perfect example, but I can tell you I was not very loving to a brother in Christ. You should know enough to love. What should I have done, and some will view this extreme, but it's Paul's point in the text, is been willing to sacrifice and love. Look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He'd give it up. 
This is what we've talked about. I'm going to put this verse on the screen, Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Mention this by phrase again, but it's disadvantaging yourself for the benefit of others. That's what that verse in translation is really. I will disadvantage myself for the benefit and good of my brothers. Now, when I read verse 13, I might be like you. I love a big, red, juicy steak. I love it. No, I love it. I love a juicy steak. And when I read this, and when I hear Paul, I almost hear me screaming, I'd give up meat? Don't do that. Is that really necessary? I don't think you need to operate. And Paul's saying, I would do it if it served and honored a brother in Christ. That's crazy for me to think about. That's back to like, why should I have to give up my T-bone just because they have a problem with it? And Paul already said, they shouldn't have a problem with it. Why would anyone do that? I am so glad you asked. Because of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Only those who know and are growing in Christ and his word will be able to get this right. That we need Jesus. And when we see our own pride and sinfulness and repent of it and humbly look to the cross where Jesus pays the ultimate sacrifice, we get it. He disadvantaged himself. He came in a lowly way, not to save, but to serve, save through his serving, to humble himself. Philippians 2, the other parts of that, though he considered equality with God something to be grasped, he lowered himself. He came down to our level and disadvantaged himself. He did that for you. He did that for me. Paul knew this. So that is why he could easily give up meat because it didn't matter when he realized against his big juicy red steak, against the love of Christ and what was given to us, it changed everything. That's why it's so important to be gospel thinkers all the time. It's so important that the gospel is rehearsed over and over when we wake up each morning and we take our breath and we put our knees to the ground. And some of you are older and I'm getting this way and they're creaky knees where everything cracks and bends. We thank God for the gospel of grace and mercy in our lives. It reminds us of how Christ died so we didn't have to and we are truly owed then nothing because we have received then everything. And Jesus dies not just for us. Friends, this is, we, let's just be honest, in the church sometimes we think that Jesus died for me. And that is true. And that could be true of you to place your faith in him, but he dies for a people, the whole church, for brothers and sisters that are different than us, that think differently than us, that act differently than us, that look differently than us. And he says they died, he died for them too. Don't think always of yourself. Now, let me give you another example of this just because I think these examples help. And I don't, I don't want to like stay here, but I have a friend who like doesn't like Starbucks. And well, I said, somebody audibly said, what? <laughs> I love Starbucks. Judging out there is happening right now in your hearts. I get that. But you might want to pay attention to the next part too. So I, I love to go to Starbucks and you could whatever your opinion is about that. But I have a friend that I travel with sometimes and he just doesn't like Starbucks for a lot of political reasons, a lot of other things. And so there, I think of that when I want a coffee and I like coffee, so I'll go to places. But when I'm with him, I often will not go to Starbucks because he's with me. 
Not because that's a problem. Now, the interesting thing is he's a mature brother, and so he actually doesn't care all the time. He'll say, are you going to get your Starbucks? He's willing to serve me in that, even though it goes against every grain in his being. Often, I will just not do it. Like, no, no big deal. We'll just go there or get something there. It doesn't really matter. That's kind of the issue Paul is talking about. He's saying that doesn't make it right or wrong. And if you do a little history on Starbucks, you'll understand at least the founder of Starbucks wanted to create in something ways some good. He wanted to restore the corners of America especially, but the world for relationships to develop in a business. Of course, it's been a business and it's gone all different ways, but he doesn't like it. I like it. And so how do we navigate that to honor one another and love each other? You see, maturity includes self-restraint, or what he says three chapters or five chapters later in 1 Corinthians 13, love and self-control. That's what produces true love, right? Self-control. It doesn't matter if I'm right all the time. It matters if I love. You should know enough to love. That's just one example. Well, let me close with this example, at least on a spectrum of people, so you have a more helpful idea of maybe who you're up against in your own heart. You see, everyone in this room exists in these four categories. Let me walk you through them real quick. And you could put yourself in one of these categories. He said, there's one category that a mature if you're a mature believer who knows stuff, so you do know stuff about the Bible, you have head knowledge, but doesn't love others, you're a legalist. So you're down here on that end of the spectrum. I'm mature. I know a lot of theological things, but I actually don't love others well. I'm actually quite rude to others. And if somebody doesn't obey the rule, I have trouble with them. That's this side of the spectrum, legalism. All right? Then you got this side of the spectrum is an immature believer who doesn't know theological things and actually doesn't really care. And so they're super liberal. They'll do everything against what God's word even says. They'll be ultra liberal in their practice. I don't really care. I can drink and drink in excess. I can watch certain things and it doesn't really matter because Jesus saved me. And so the person down there, like you know, right? The person down there is looking at this person like they need to go straight to hell. All right? This is a spectrum. And in between exists two types of people. Over here is a mature believer who knows stuff, but unlike this guy, he loves in it. He puts love first. That's maturity. And then there's this guy over here that doesn't know as much right theology, but he's trying to navigate it and honor God. You see what Paul is doing? He's talking about these two in the church in Corinth, the middle two. He's addressing the mature people who know stuff and saying you should love. And he's addressing these people who don't know as much and saying, let them navigate that. Christ died for them too. And so where do you think you are in the Christian life on this spectrum? Are you more legalistic or more liberal? What does that look like for you? And if so, then how can I apply what Paul is saying? Here's what I'd say about that. If you are a mature or maturing believer, consider those younger in the faith as to new. Let's use the example of running. Consider they're new to running, and you are a marathoner, right? 26-plus miles marathoner. Are you going to take this brother out on a marathon run when they're new, or are you going to go to jog with them? 
Think about that just as an analogy. Do I have a commitment to bring this brother up in training and discipling? Or will I just go take off for the hills at my five-minute pace and leave him in the dust? That's what Paul is saying here. Let me add a little step in reality further. What if there's a new believer, let's make this real, who's come out of 20 years of alcohol abuse? 20 years of a life of alcohol abuse come from a life where all alcohol has always been abused, and you come from a home and a life where alcohol has always been moderately used. It's always been controlled. It's not abused. It's neutral. What do you do with that brother and sister? Do you invite them over with wine present at the table? Or do you sacrifice your liberty in loving them? Think about those things, Paul says. There's so many applications in this, and what we must do is protect ourselves from being mature legalists and guard ourselves completely on the other side from being wild liberals with no borders. And so here are questions just as we close to ask yourself. Maybe representing each one of those people types. Number one, do I see areas of my life where I've used knowledge to blow people up? Maybe that's you down there. I would say repent, confess and repent of those things and ask Christ to change your heart in those. Do I see areas in my life that I've used knowledge to blow people up? Here's a second. Do I see areas where I can build or continue to build people up? Maybe I'm here and I'm trying. Are there more ways that I can do that for the good of the body of Christ? That's the second one. Number three, do I look for opportunities to show patience and extend grace towards others? These people in this group still need to do that. They still need to understand they exist in the body and, and, and they need to be helped along in that. But they need to be patient and gracious themselves as it's received towards them. And then way down there, maybe this is you. Maybe this is a really penetrating question for the day. Do I even care about pleasing Christ? living according to his word and leading a holy lifestyle. Maybe you're down here and you're just like, I don't like, I just love coming to church and worshiping and grace and I don't really need to change my lifestyle. And Jesus would look at you and say, I died so you could be new. You don't have to live there anymore. We are to please Christ and obey him and to learn and grow in knowledge, but it's grace and truth. So where are you in that scale? As you're thinking about this, I'm just going to read a couple chapters ahead, a few verses in 1 Corinthians 13, because I think we could all do better at this. If you've been to a wedding, most likely you've heard this, but maybe this context will be a little different in terms of what Paul was really saying about what love is and that we would pray that this be us. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Paul is writing this, by the way, again, about himself. 
Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. You should know enough to love. Let's pray. I want to leave you with this from 1 John. John, the old uh, well, as the disciple and the older man in Ephesus when he led, having spent time around Jesus himself, would always say this, love one another. That's what he did as a pastor in the church's Ephesus. And so he writes this letter as a reminder, this one verse for us to leave with today. Beloved, as he would often call his flock, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Go out and do that with the grace of God in your life. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are sent.